I spoke via Skype to Valentina Buch, Global Malaria and Health Partnerships Advisor at UNICEF, and asked her about the impact of COVID-19 on malaria control. It is unfortunately a very highly likelihood of the lockdowns. We are hearing many reports that because of the lockdowns, families, in particular children, are not going out to seek care. And in particular, we need to, again, ensure that people are not afraid to seek care for malaria. So when they do feel symptoms, that they do go and get a diagnostic, that they get the right treatment. Our biggest concern is that we might see deaths going up because of severe malaria. and welcome to the Medicus Mundi Switzerland Health for All podcast. And today we talk with Valentina Buch, who has been a Global Malaria and Health Partnership Advisor for UNICEF since 2008. She has dedicated her career to malaria and has spent much of her time working in malaria endemic countries, such as the Democratic Republic of Congo, Angola, Kenya, Madagascar, Cameroon and Mozambique. She worked not only for UNICEF, but also for the World Health Organization, International Rescue Committee, the International Organization for Migration and the United Nations Development Programme. Today, she lives with her family in Switzerland. Hi, Valentina. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast today. Welcome to this episode. Hi, Karine. Thank you very much for having me. Looking at your CV, you have a long-standing professional experience in the fight against malaria. Why did you become a malaria specialist? I actually started my public health career just at the turn of the millennium. Uh, there was at that time great excitement around the launch of the Millennium Development Goals and subsequently the Global Fund to fight HTB and malaria. And so actually just before I entered graduate school at about the same time, I was lucky enough to have an internship at the United Nations Development Program in Turkey. And at the time, they had a very large dossier of programs that they were beginning to close out. So they wanted me to help wrap up um, many of these programs. And actually, the one on top happened to be about malaria. And so it piqued my interest, which was fascinating for me because, of course, it was a problem for refugees. It was a problem uh, for the dispossessed in southeastern Turkey. It had agricultural problems. And so instead of closing that program, I actually helped build that program up in southeastern Turkey. Um, it helped me to work with ministries of public health, with uh, ministers of agriculture, uh, refugee programs, migrants. Um, and it gave me a fantastic red thread because then going into graduate school, I could follow and I could do all of my courses around one disease, which then gave me really very specific knowledge and helped me really to build a career and an interest around one disease, which happened to be at the time really peaking and really having begun to look at what was a terrible, terrible disease. At the, at the time, we used to say that we lost a child to malaria every 30 seconds. The risk of being bitten by a mosquito and getting an infection from malaria is equally high for women and men. But looking at the statistics, there is a difference. So who gets more bitten? It's actually not about who gets bitten, but who is more susceptible to the parasite and who becomes sick with malaria. Actually, in some societies, it is men who are infected because they are working more closely to mosquito breeding sites, or they're in mines, or they're in rice paddies, or they're in the forest at peak biting times. 
And the acceptability of nets, which are currently the best protection against malaria, is also strongly linked to cultural sleeping patterns. So sometimes if you have a man who's a breadwinner, they will put the man under the bed net. Um, women and children are at greatest risk for being infected with malaria for a number of reasons. Some of them are socioeconomic. We know that it is the most poor. And some of them are the biologic. So you have developing immune systems in children under five. And pregnant women lose their natural immunity to malaria if they are in malaria endemic areas due to the biological factors of pregnancy. So we can say there is a gender difference. Women and girls do encounter social, cultural and policy related barriers that can hinder them accessing malaria prevention and treatment services. Some of these are treatment seeking behavior, decision making power within families, resource allocation and financial authorities within households. We've also seen that in some countries, the restricted mobility of women may impede their attendance at primary health care clinics. The sex of community health workers providing care, even at the household level, can also impede access. For instance, in some women, in some societies, women are reluctant to see a male, a male health care worker for cultural reasons. Why are women having more difficulties in accessing treatment? As I said, some of them are, are socioeconomic um, in many ways. We know that it is the poorest, most rural women who are mostly infected with malaria, the same way that it is their children. Um, when you have differences in financial making power or in decision making, who is it who actually manages the resources that are necessary? Um, you have to realize that where malaria is transmitted is sometimes the most geographically difficult areas. It is the most poor areas. These are very rural areas. Sometimes, especially during rainy seasons, they are completely cut off. And so being able to seek care um, is often not free. Um, it requires resources, be they human or financial. And then once you are, once you, once you have to access treatment, it requires not only commodities, but it also requires, which means you have to ensure that you had a diagnostics, you had the medicines available, which meant somebody had to carry them out there, and that has a cost. Um, and then when women and children go to access the treatment, they sometimes need to pay for for treatment. There's still fees for services. Or if they're very, very sick, they need to be transported to other health facilities, and those also have costs. You touched on the topic of cultural norms and values, which impede women and children having access to treatment. In the work you do, do you address or challenge these norms? Very much so. So UNICEF is very much a gender and cultural and uh, children's rights uh, agency. For us, it's incredibly important to ensure that we can help the most vulnerable pro um, populations, such as children and women, to be sensitized to understand why they need to be prioritized for access to service. So we give a lot of information around the prioritized use of nets, ensuring universal access, which means that everyone in the community has access to bed nets, but also to treatment, to diagnosis and treatment. We also are working on socioeconomic programs, such as driving down uh, malnourishment and poverty, And we also do know, actually, that the decisions about seeking treatment for children or pregnant women are often made by the men. And thus our programming not only sensitizes mothers, but also fathers and those and those in, in the community who would be making decisions. So we often work with community leaders and faith-based leaders to ensure that, again, they are prioritizing the needs of their communities. The international community advocates that community participation is crucial when delivering health interventions to vulnerable populations. Are women and men equally engaged in malaria control programs? We're definitely working to make gender equality a reality. We are well aware that the majority of community health workers 
definitely more than half are women, and women around the world have the primary responsibility for caring for those who are sick in the household, including from malaria. There are also multiple initiatives, especially around World Malaria Day. There was a recent Women in Malaria conference to encourage young female researchers, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And next Thursday, there will actually be a webinar to celebrate, share experiences and reflection on African women's efforts to reach the target of zero malaria, coordinated by local African institutions. Where do we stand today with zero malaria? It's in progress. I mean, definitely, if you've heard uh, Pedro Alonso from the Global Malaria Program speak, he says we're very much at a crossroads. So we are off target at the moment. Um, part of this is because of the burgeoning population. But then, of course, COVID has very much impeded many of, of the programming that we've tried to do. The disruption to essential health services has been very, very negative across, especially in areas where malaria is prevalent, such as sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. We talked a lot about malaria and adults. What about children? You touched already on, on this topic because we know that every two minutes a child dies due to severe malaria and basically there is no excuse for the world to still have malaria. What is your view on that? Malaria is of particular importance to UNICEF as it is the third largest killer of children right behind pneumonia and diarrhea. A child does still die of malaria every two minutes, meaning that we are losing nearly 300,000 young lives every single year. Most of these deaths occur in Sub-Saharan Africa, where approximately 24 million children are estimated to be infected with the deadliest form of malaria. The likelihood of death is increased in children with pre-existing health problems such as anemia, malnutrition, and immunocompromised states. Thus, for us, fighting malaria is very much a multi-pronged approach which takes into account strengthening health systems, socioeconomic approaches, including gender and poverty reduction, as well as nutrition and education. And how does it work at the moment? Um, what is UNICEF doing at the moment to improve this situation? So for us, our tagline is that no child should die from malaria anywhere in the world. So we are very much prioritizing these high burden, high impact areas in sub-Saharan Africa. We work with governments and partners to combat malaria in all of these countries. We not only support purchasing and delivering essential anti-malaria commodities in these high burden countries, but we make sure that communities can access these commodities at the very last mile. We also actively help countries to prioritize and mobilize anti-malarial resources and to resolve programmatic bottlenecks that could impede malaria control activities. We, by that, I mean we use our very well-established health platforms to deliver anti-malarial especially activities, especially through maternal and child health services, such as immunization and antenatal care, and also through something that we call integrated community case management, which addresses the main killers of children. And how does it look like at the moment for your work? How do you interact? Because traveling is, is difficult uh, due to the COVID situation. So how do you work with your partners? Much of it right now is, is of course, like we're doing now. It's through Zoom, teleconferences, emails, uh, lots of phone calls, WhatsApp, using really the digital technologies. Um, it's given us an opportunity. I think there is a little bit of a, a silver lining with COVID in that we've begun to invest in new mechanisms, um, especially for risk communication and community engagement. Uh, so, for instance, uh, next week around World Malaria Day, UNICEF will be releasing what we call a malaria chat bot. Uh, we did one for COVID-19, 
And it's really a great information system to share information. So you can very easily through SMS on your phone, it's free. You can ask questions, you can ask questions about your fever, you can see if you should go and seek treatment, you know, and it really encourages that if you are febrile, especially in these areas, not to be afraid of COVID and to go and seek treatment because we do know that malaria is a major, major killer. And how do people perceive the, the current situation in these countries? Because the symptoms of malaria and COVID are kind of similar. How do they know? Do they have malaria or no malaria? Or how do they manage the, the situation? It's been very problematic. And it's something that most of the agencies like WHO, UNICEF, many others have tried to put out guidelines. Many, many agencies, uh, the Global Fund, UNITAID, are beginning to help put out personal protective equipment because, of course, we have to protect our community health workers. A lot of it is also, again, about information. So you are right. Uh, the initial symptoms for malaria and COVID, especially around fever, are very similar. Um, we've thus really encouraged not to be afraid of COVID because, especially in these areas, the likelihood is that, unfortunately, you have been at home. You're supposed to stay home with quarantines. You're supposed to stay home with lockdowns. And that's where mosquitoes bite. Mosquitoes bite at night, especially if people haven't been able to receive their bed net or they haven't been using it. Um, so we have been really encouraging them that if they have the initial symptoms of fever, um, that they do need to go and seek care, that they do need to get a rapid diagnostic test and know whether or not they're positive or negative for, for malaria, which will then allow uh, community health workers to give the right medications. So it's been really very important for us. Um, we do know there was a report put out last week by the Global Fund that unfortunately COVID has reduced uh, malaria treatment seeking by at least 30%. Stay back. Eh? I have COVID-19. What? I have fever, body pains, headache, and nausea. I don't want to die. Ish. Clearly, this isolation has gone to your head. If you had COVID, you would have had a cough and difficulties breathing. You, my friend, have malaria. Let's go back to this sick child. What are the consequences of a sick child for itself, the family and the society? For us, it's very important. I mean, a sick child, we do know that malaria is a disease of poverty. So it affects the most poor and it can also drive families into poverty. It's a disease of war and famine. Children who are mal malnourished are far more likely to catch and die from malaria. And families who are driven from their homes due to civil strife and security and the various other reasons that cause children and their families to free, flee are also at considerably higher risk from dying from malaria. Malaria is also integral to the overall well-being of children, especially in terms of health and development milestones. Take, for example, education. When kids are sick, they cannot go to school and parents cannot go to work. We have also seen the risk of severe malaria to cognitive development. There is thus a very strong impetus for all of us to ensure that we are working across the spectrum to reduce school absenteeism and ensure parents can continue to receive income to prevent malnutrition and pay for health services if needed. What are the measures UNICEF put in place to fight malaria? 
So as I, as I mentioned, we're very much working across the spectrum. So we purchase and we also help to drive down the price of bed nets and anti-malarials. And then we ensure that they are delivered to where they are needed. For us, it's really important that they are available at the last mile. As I mentioned, we know that it is poor rural communities who are most at risk. We are working across a number of different spectrums. So we not only work on routine care, um, so these integrated packages of delivery of services. Uh, one case is, for instance, antenatal care in malaria endemic areas uh, needs to include intermittent preventive treatment for pregnancy, uh, what is called IPTP. Very simple drug. It's an, it should be administered three to four times during the pregnancy. It's incredibly effective at reducing malaria in pregnant women. But again, it's a complex of the suite that needs to be given to pregnant women while they're pregnant, like the administration of folic acid, uh, iron, ensuring that they're well nourished, um, messaging around safe behaviors for their birth. Um, another opportunity is again that we provide bed nets um, during immunization. So when a mother comes with her child for their routine immunizations, uh, we do a well baby check. We ensure that they're using their bed net that they have been provided. Um, we also then support these large scale campaigns for the distribution of bed nets. Um, and as I mentioned, we really very much encourage uh, accessing diagnosis and treatment at the community level. In particular for us, it's really important um, that we're supporting this integrated community case management, which uses an algorithm starting with a malaria RDT um, to then know if you're positive or negative for malaria, and then can also look at whether if you're not positive for malaria, um, might you be positive for um, viral or bacterial pneumonia or diarrhea, and thus really a suite of what is killing children, especially in poor rural communities. So we're working across the spectrum, not only to ensure the commodities necessary to provide good services, uh, we're also working on quality of care. So training uh, doctors, training community health workers, ensuring that they have the right skills to provide the best care to the populations that need them. You did extensive work on pregnant women and malaria, and you mentioned already how pregnant women are at a greater risk for malaria. You have two children which were born in Africa. How did you protect yourself from malaria during pregnancy? So I was very fortunate. I could afford uh, a very safe pregnancy and I could protect my children. Um, but of course, as someone who provides malaria advice, I knew that I needed to sleep under a bed net every night when I was in areas. I knew to avoid uh, mosquito biting times, which are at dusk and at dawn and all night. So I would sleep under my bed net. Um, but I also knew when I needed to take, as I mentioned, this intermittent preventive treatment uh, for the prevention of malaria in pregnancy. And I knew the signs and symptoms. Um, so I knew that should I be infected with a fever, had I been in a malaria endemic area, um, that I should seek care and that I should inform my health care provider that I might be infected with malaria and to request an RDT. Just to, be, to have a better understanding, what does a woman, for example, uh, living in the rural area of the De Democratic Republic of Congo, how does she experience having malaria, for example, during pregnancy? So the problem is, is really twofold. As, as I mentioned, uh, malaria is a socioeconomic uh, problem. It's a problem of poverty and marginalization. Um, and it's also a biologic uh, problem. So for us, it isn't just about ensuring that the commodities are there. It's all well and good if a bed net is available at a health facility or your community health worker has given you a bed net. Um, but if you're not using uh, your net to protect yourself during your pregnancy, 
Um, it's a failure of community demand. So it's one of the reasons why we focus quite a lot on ensuring communities are educated, that they have the right information, that they know what services are available to them and what they should be doing. Um, again, the quality of care, so ensuring that community health providers, uh, health facility workers know to prioritize pregnant women to ensure that, again, they need to be checked for malaria to help encourage them to come for early uh, antenatal care, that they take the full course of SP, um, that if they aren't diagnosed positive for malaria, that they take the full treatment course with the right medicines. Again, if a family can afford an LLIN um, and if they can afford antenatal care, um, that they again prioritize helping the woman. As I said, sometimes the decision-making power, um, you have been given a bed net during antenatal care, but they might put the father under, under there because he's the one making the money. So again, ensuring that the family realizes they need to protect the, the pregnant women. Um, so for us, it's really about working across the spectrum, really ensuring that poor rural women have access to the commodities they need and that they know how to use them because that is the reality. Um, those who are dying from malaria are indeed children and pregnant women who are in poor rural communities. And so it's up to us to help, to help ensure that they get the quality and the services that they need. And now we are in the middle of a pandemic and COVID-19 is hitting us hard. You already touched on that, but I just want to hear it again or more in more details. How do you see the current situation with regards to malaria? UNICEF, WHO and the Global Fund have been monitoring the impact of COVID on malaria services. And unfortunately, all of this monitoring has shown that the pandemic has had an impact. While we were initially able to maintain some of the vector control campaigns, so some of the bed net distributions, um, there has been over 30% decline in malaria treatment services. This for us is incredibly, incredibly serious because if malaria cases are not being treated, they can proceed quickly to death and they also become a reservoir for onward transmission, which could take our efforts to end malaria back decades. And how does COVID-19 affect your work? Do you miss traveling or are you fully based now uh, here in Europe? Of course, for us, it's always much better to be in the field, uh, be close to the, the communities that we serve, um, really backstop our in-country focal points who are really at the front line of giving services. Um, especially right now, you know, we're all hands on deck. Everyone's really trying to fight the pandemic at the same time, maintaining services for the diseases like malaria. Um, as I mentioned, we've had to be very innovative and think new, through new digital technologies, a lot of use of WhatsApp, a lot of use of, of different mechanisms to talk to each other. And again, to ensure that we are giving the right information. As you know, the COVID pandemic has not only been a, a disease, it has been a disease of misinformation. So ensuring that, again, communities know when to seek care for malaria, to know that they could still be infected has been really important for us. So we've used all sorts of different mechanisms, radio, television, internet, uh, town, going back to town criers, again, ensuring just using like a megaphone. So... For us, you know, who are here, who are who are safe, um, it's about backstopping those who are on the front line and really helping empower them with information, making their lives as easy as possible. Very soon, on the 25th of April, we celebrate the World Malaria Day. Why is it so important to celebrate it this year? We have to focus on keeping up the fight. As uh, Pedro Alonso from the Global Malaria Program always says, we need to push past the crossroads and think about how we're going to build back better. 
I honestly do think we can find a silver lining in this in this pandemic. And one of the most important issues is that we are going to invest in health systems. I think we've realized that weak, fragile health systems are really what has pushed us into this pandemic everywhere around the world. Um, it, I think it has also taught us that we are all interdependent, we are all interlinked, and that a problem in sub-Saharan Africa or in China can affect all of us. So it really is up to us to really join hands and unite and work together. And that's something that we need to push forward. If you had all the means to fight malaria, what would you do? I would build strong, sustainable, resilient health systems everywhere that need them. I think that's really the only way we're ever going to get to zero malaria. Um, I like what someone said the other day, um, strong health systems are good for malaria and what's good for malaria is good for health systems. So I think we have a really strong opportunity to do that. Thank you so much for this very interesting talk and for being my guest at the Medicus Mundi Switzerland Health for All podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you for helping us push forward to end malaria. This was the Medicus Mundi Switzerland Health for All podcast with Kachin Weiss. You can listen to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and on our website. To spread the message, please leave a comment on our website, share and like it. This was the third and last episode of the new malaria season. Stay tuned and watch out for the next season where we will talk about the impact of mental health.